right, we are back. We didn't get to our old pal Will Durst as we normally do at the end of our first segment, so let's go to him now. Well, thanks, Doug. And today I want to put in my two cents about the little dust-up they had in Congress this week. In case you missed it, both of our big-time political parties attempted to wring some mileage out of this country's outrage over the cost of gasoline. Yeah, imagine that. Political posturing in the middle of an election year. I know, I know, you're shocked. What next? Hookers in Hollywood? Ugly shorts at a picnic? Stinky diapers? Wet fish? The only difference between the two parties was the exact construction of the red, white, and blue grandstands they erected to demonstrate their overwhelming concern for we, the American people, and not to mention their own jobs. In the face of obscene quarterly profits, the Democrats want to cut the lucrative tax subsidies that oil companies enjoy and also place more taxes on those profits. The Republicans, on the other hand, think the best way to solve the worldwide energy crisis is to give the oil companies more tax breaks and open the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge for drilling, which is to be expected the same way you're not surprised when a weasel is sneaky. And guess what got done? That's right, absolutely nothing. Stalemate. Sound and fury signifying nothing. Like Paris Hilton, a bunch of empty attitude. We're spending 6% of our income on gas, and all they can do is bicker. You know, I don't know whether to laugh or to cry. Meanwhile, our beloved leader can be found traipsing around the continent on a trade mission trying to convince Europeans that the dollar is a good investment. <laughs> wonder what his sales pitch is. You, you, you can get a whole lot of them for, for almost nothing. <laughs> for Radio Parallax, I'm Wolfgang. Was one of our perennial favorites, Will Durst, America's foremost political comic. And uh, we often do obituaries in this part of the program. We probably should refer to Elliot Asanoff. That's the man I mentioned uh, in the last segment, the author of Eight Men Out, a 1963 retelling of the Black Sox scandal in which eight members of the Chicago White Sox threw the 1919 World Series. Mr. Asanoff spent more than three years exhaustively researching the book, according to his son. And it was in 1988 they made a movie with uh, John Cusack, Charlie Sheen, and Christopher Lloyd. Asanoff himself played some minor league baseball. He wrote for television and film, working on uh, the Western shows Maverick and Wagon Train. During the McCarthy era, he'd been blacklisted and had to resort to writing under the names of other writers. When he obtained his FBI file years later, he told his son he'd been targeted because he once signed a petition outside Yankee Stadium saying that black ball player Jackie Robinson should be allowed to play in the major leagues. At one point, Mr. Asanoff married Jocelyn Brando, the sister of actor Marlon Brando. Anyway, Eight Men Out is a pretty good movie. If you haven't seen it, I recommend you take it in. We also shouldn't let the passing of uh, rock and roll giant Bo Diddley go unremarked upon. In 1964, when the Beatles were asked in their first U.S. press conference what they most look forward to seeing in the States, John Lennon replied, Bo Diddley. It was Bo Diddley along with Chuck Berry and Little Richard who infused early rock with the sounds of Southern gospel and R&B. 
creating a daring and sexually charged musical genre that heavily influenced artists as diverse as the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, and The Clash. With tunes such as Mona, Who Do You Love, and Say Man, Diddley became a legend, said the New York Times. There were several keys to his musical magic. One was his signature syncopated beat, bump, 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 which may have derived from the drum beats of the Yoruba and Congo cultures of Africa and turned up in such tunes as Buddy Holly's Not Fade Away and Johnny Otis's Willie and the Hand Jive. It was noted that another ingredient in his music was his technique. His big fingers made moving around the fretboard difficult, so he emphasized reverb, distortion, and the bubbling tremolo. And then it was noted was his presence. His smile was wicked. He hopped and strutted and shimmied on stage and played his guitar between his legs, over his head, and with his teeth. Bo Diddley would perform at the inaugurals for both Bill Clinton and George Herbert Walker Bush. He received an honorary Lifetime Grammy Award and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It was noted that his later years were laced with some bitterness over artists who got credit for his style, particularly Elvis Presley. Said Diddley, he copied me, his legs moving and all that. Even worse, like many black singers of the 1950s, Bo Diddley never got royalties. He once estimated that record companies owed him as much as $10 million. You go out and buy Bo Diddley's greatest hits, and I don't get one dime from it, he said. It's a good old ripoff. Take my baby away from home. Now let's talk a little bit about Guantanamo Beyond the Law by Tom Lasseter. In fact, I'd like to read the beginning of it. The militants crept up behind Mohammed Akhtiar as he squatted at the spigot to wash his hands before evening prayers at the Guantanamo Bay detention camp. They shouted, Allahu Akbar, God is great, as one of them hafted a metal mop squeezer into the air and slammed it into Akhtiar's head and sent thick streams of blood running down his face. Akhtiar was one of more than 770 terrorism suspects imprisoned at the U.S. naval base at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, after the September 11th attacks. They are men the Bush administration described as the worst of the worst. But Akhtiar was no terrorist. American troops had dragged him out of his Afghanistan home in 2003 and held him in Guantanamo for three years in the belief that he was an insurgent involved in rocket attacks on U.S. forces. The Islamic radicals in Guantanamo Camp 4 who hissed infidel and spat at Akhtiar, however, knew something his captors didn't. The U.S. government had the wrong guy. He was not an enemy of the government. He was a friend of the government, a senior Afghan intelligence officer told McClatchy. Akhtiar was imprisoned at Guantanamo on the basis of false information that local anti-government insurgents fed to U.S. troops. The article describes how after an eight-month McClatchy investigation in 11 countries on three continents, they found that Akhtiar was one of dozens of men and according to several officials, perhaps hundreds, whom the United States has wrongfully imprisoned in Afghanistan, Cuba, and elsewhere on flimsy or fabricated evidence, old personal scores, or bounty payments. By the way, we should note that uh, while the U.S. is fooling around with the wrong guys in many cases in Cuba, uh, back in Afghanistan, the uh, Taliban is having a comeback and recently staged a jailbreak wherein uh, 870 people broke out of prison. Hope you had a chance to hear Lasseter on National Public Radio last week, but in the third installment, 
Uh, he described how Mohammed Naeem Farouk was a thug in eastern Afghanistan. He ran a kidnapping and extortion rat- racket and controlled his turf with a band of, band of gunmen who, who rode around in trucks with AK-47s. Turns out when Farouk was taken into custody, he was not a member of the Taliban. By the time he got out of Guantanamo, he'd been converted by the radicals. In fact, in 2006, when the Department of Defense released a stack of 20 most wanted playing cards identifying militants in Afghanistan and Pakistan, with Osama bin Laden at the top, Farouk was 16 cards into the deck. Afghan and Pakistani officials... uh, Uh, have told the paper that uh, they're aware that uh, Guantanamo was churning out new militant leaders. Said Issa Khan, a Pakistani former detainee, a lot of our friends are working against the Americans now because if you torture someone without any reason, what do you expect? This is so illustrative of the entire Bush administration's approach to, I think, just about everything. Note of the article, the original Guantanamo camp, Camp X-Ray, was little more than a collection of wire mesh cells in which detainees were grouped together without much concern for their backgrounds. In April 2002, U.S. officials shifted the detainees to Camp Delta, which grew to include a series of camps organized by security level. The idea was that detainees who presented graver threats and were uncooperative would be separated from those with looser ties to international terrorism. What the plan overlooked according to several detainees and a former U.S. defense official who spoke on conditions of anonymity, is that even mid-level al-Qaeda members had been trained in resistance techniques and that one of them was to avoid calling attention to yourself. In other words, an angry cab driver from Kabul may have been more likely to attack a guard and end up in Camp 3 than an al-Qaeda militant. Here's a part I find quite interesting. Uh, the detainees sort of have their own hierarchy of, you know, some of the hardcore. And uh, they had to have a fatwa issued for them to talk to the military authorities. Um, people, people representing the council said uh, it couldn't just come from any imam. It had to be from a senior cleric in Iraq? No. Afghanistan? No. Saudi Arabia? Is where that senior cleric had to be, which was noted in the article to be a hotbed of fundamentalist Sunni Islam. Part two of the article uh, was was particularly hard to read. Turned out that we've heard about what uh, what goes on in Guantanamo. Some of the worst brutality took place at Bagram Air Force Base in Afghanistan, where numerous people were actually literally beaten to death. The article noted that uh, no serious punishments have been administered, even in the cases of the two detainees who died after American guards beat them. Turns out that the only American officer who's been reprimanded for the deaths uh, told investigators that he'd received no formal training in leading a military police company, just the correspondence courses and on-the-job training, he said. The Army lawyer who investigated the death said the government failed to present any evidence of what are approved tactics, techniques, and procedures in detainee operations. Note of the article, the eight-month McClatchy investigation found a pattern of abuse that continued for years. The abuse of detainees at Bagram has been reported by U.S. media organizations and that it eclipsed the alleged abuse at Guantanamo hadn't previously been reported. Here's my favorite paragraph. Guards said they routinely beat their prisoners to retaliate for the 9-11 terrorist attacks. 
unaware that the vast majority of the detainees had little or no connection to Al-Qaeda. So when Fox News likes to point out that in, in times of war that you've got to do serious interrogations to get evidence that may save people, well, that, that's, that's true. But uh, it appears that in most cases that has little or no bearing on what we're talking about here. A lot of these guys wound up in custody because the government offered cash rewards for people to turn in supposed insurgents, which was, you know, a handy way to uh, get rid of somebody that you didn't like too much and get some money while you were at it. Anyway, the BNN editorial is calling for the closing of Guantanamo, noting from its inception, the Bush administration's idea was ill-conceived and it's time now to end it. Said the paper, it's tempting to say that Guantanamo is just another example of incompetence in the Bush administration, but it's much more than that. The failure to set up an adequate detention system for the war in Afghanistan after the September 11th attacks was a deliberate decision to reverse more than a century of U.S. policy. In past conflicts, U.S. policy was to conduct timely screening of captives at the point of capture to determine which were soldiers, spies, terrorists, criminals, or innocent people. Timely screening ensures the timely release of detainees who have no intelligence value and are no threat to U.S. forces. The Bush administration never set up adequate detention or screening systems in Afghanistan. Instead, it put its efforts into establishing a detention facility in the U.S. naval base at Guantanamo, Cuba. This would be a place far from the battlefield and outside U.S. borders, where captives would be transported and held indefinitely. The result was predictable, as Tom Lassiter reported. Dozens and perhaps hundreds of individuals have been wrongly imprisoned without charges or legal recourse. This produced radicalized detainees bent on revenge. As Senator Dianne Feinstein said last week, Guantanamo began in the Bush administration and it should end in the Bush administration. It is far past time to end this monstrous mistake and close this national embarrassment. Bravo to the B for this piece and bravo for this editorial. And that about does it for today's program. I'd like to thank Sean Minton for his insights in the world of sport and our old pal Will Durst. I also hope that sometime in the next few months we can bring Valerie Plame Wilson to this program live. This show was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week at the same time.